This episode may contain themes that are unsettling for some listeners and includes dialogue that is inappropriate for children under 14. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hey, juicers, I'm Brooke. And I'm Melissa. And this is... For God's sake. Don't drink the Jones juice. Welcome back to episode 35. Hi, guys. Thanks for waiting on us. It's been a <laughs> long two weeks since we last recorded. We honestly forgot how to record. I know. Like, we're talking like, okay, so what do we do? How, how does the intro go again? <laughs> what do we say? What is the name of our podcast again? Yeah, it's been pretty crazy these last two weeks um we've missed you guys though i have missed a freaking recording dude dude it, it i i was so excited on my way over here I but i genuinely feel like those two weeks were a good break, break to make us more excited for it because mm-hmm. sometimes i dread coming yeah. to record because it's like like you think just doing it once a week you would sometimes be excited it's for it like burnout you know exactly just like yeah. anything with anything right you know? but but so it's been two weeks yeah so i'm excited to cover my case and i'm excited to hear yours yes ma'am um so i guess we'll talk about life for a minute okay. um i have something that i would like to talk about yeah. so you guys i went skydiving yesterday and it was incredible um truly like if you haven't been and you want to go fucking do it like i i have no words it's still like so surreal to me and uh Alyssa was asking like how do you calm down from like that adrenaline you know like how do you go to bed at night and i'm like honestly like it was such a peaceful experience for me that it wasn't like i i landed and was like oh my god i'm gonna you know it was just like everything like the world was just wonderful that yeah. that's the best way to describe it like everything was just peachy you know and it's just it's an incredible incredible experience and 10 out of 10 would recommend so you guys do it i can't <laughs> even imagine that like i genuinely feel like i'd be jumpy for the next few days i would not be able to sleep i'd be like oh my god i jumped out of a plane and i could have died but i didn't it was amazing worth it a one thousand percent i was telling brooke earlier that um i used to have this friend and we met when we were like early teens like 13 or so and we had always planned to go skydiving once we turned 18 and um when the moment came i was like no (laughs) absolutely not oh man you know when i was 18 i don't think i would have done it either yeah like ashley so a girl that i work with went with me she's 19 and she's a little bitty and i'm just like you are such a baddie like i don't think i would have done it at that young Mm-mm. i don't think i would have i wouldn't even do it now it's something i've considered for years now i have talked about it you know and it's uh, Alyssa's like well, like what happens if you get up there and you're like i can't do it and you're like crying like nah dude like i, I don't i can't imagine somebody having that reaction because it's like you're up there and you know like this is happening regardless of whether i like it or not like i would they be are crying. gonna push your ass out <laughs> <laughs> i would be crying for sure so i, I think, don't know like the well i think the initial like jumping out 
yeah i would probably cry and then i would probably ease up and enjoy it yeah the scariest part for me was just seeing everybody that went out before me and it's like they just get like sucked into oblivion it's crazy it's like you see them just like somersault and they're they're gone it's like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and we were the last me and my instructor were the last to go so i got to see everyone go before me so i don't know i feel like it almost would have been better just to go first you know what i mean i don't Uh, know i would have wanted to go last for sure really i'm an i'm an observer i like to observe how things happen make sure nobody else dies first yeah and like see how every like how it's gonna yeah go once they get out of the plane that way i can prepare myself right that's how i always am so yeah like me and ashton my friend ashton we went axe throwing the other day which i think (laughs) is so cool i've wanted to do that for so long it's not as cool as skydiving but (laughs) i had never done it before and um she my birthday is a week from today Mm -hmm. or no a week from yesterday and so happy birthday to you thank you thank you are you gonna be too hungover to record next sunday oh um (laughs) i guess this is not a conversation for the podcast but since we're here um (laughs) your mom was wanting to do march birthdays on sunday that's right oh my gosh we cannot keep skipping episodes we'll just have to do it saturday night or something or monday monday yeah yeah okay guys bear with us we're so sorry (laughs) it's gonna be another monday (laughs) yep but you'll still get it on monday it'll just be late yeah unless i'm here till midnight then you'll get it tuesday but yeah yeah but anyway so ashton took me axe throwing well she took me to dinner at the social goat tavern and then we went axe throwing and um I made her throw an axe first because i just wanted to watch and see what happened before Mm -hmm. i did it Mm -hmm. and throwing an axe is actually hard like yeah. is not, it heavy no so like the actual throwing of the axe is not hard but getting it to stick into the yeah. target like you have to do it a certain way yeah and thankfully one like you know one of the instructors or whatever um he was a little like 16 year old boy showing us how mm-hmm. to do this and this motherfucker literally would go up and you know there's like um it's like a, a little boxed in room mm-hmm. and then the targets on the other side and he would just go up to the front of that room and he would just quickly throw the axe behind him and it would stick every single time that's amazing but me and ashton are looking at the target and throwing <laughs> them and they are not hitting uh, i got I, a bullseye once hell yeah and i was so proud of myself i took a picture with it and <sighs> the instructor made fun of me why <laughs> I don't know. I guess because he can just do it. Yeah. And it's not that impressive that I did it. But did they like come and like show you how to do it? Or you just kind of like go to the box and start throwing? They show you. Okay. Yeah. They um, like, do you, is it like a timed thing? Yeah. So you can do it for 30 minutes or you can do it for an hour. Okay. And we did it for an hour. So. Okay. And it goes by fast. You would think that just throwing an axe at the wall for yeah. an hour might would get boring, but it no, doesn't. It sounds so fun. I've always wanted to do it. There's yeah. like games you can do yeah. with it, which me and Ashton were just not good at it. So we didn't, pl- we just kind of counted our points and. Was it super busy? Um, I mean, we had to wait. Yeah. I think there's um, six little yeah. things and they were all full. Mm-hmm. And um, there's like one that's kind of far to the back and it's kind of more private yeah and the lady was like if you guys just want to wait like you know 
a little while i'll give you the private one and we were like yes yeah please for the love of god because yeah. this is going to be embarrassing and it is embarrassing when you throw it and it hits the wall super hard <laughs> but it doesn't stick and right. you can tell when something doesn't stick because of the loud noise that it makes yeah it's embarrassing i'm sure there's loud noises constantly though i mean not really well i mean it is loud if an axe sticks but you can definitely tell because it doesn't just hit the wall and then fall it flings everywhere so. yeah <laughs> it, but it was really fun we had a really really good time so sweet we I'm should do it sometime yeah i'm totally down we're like pumping each other up we're like yes. think about this one horrible thing that your <laughs> husband did and get mad at it i love it it was great Yes. So we had an exciting weekend, I think. Yeah, we did. We sure did. Yeah. Okay. Well, is that it? Do we have any new? Do we still have shirts at the shop? Yeah, we've still got the uh, Ouija board shirts at the shop. I think I've got like 10 or 12 left. If you'd like one, come and get it. Also, is this my first time seeing you in two weeks? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. The last time we saw each other, it was a wild time. We, uh, <laughs> you mean when we got sick? <laughs> Thank you guys for praying for our, our hangovers a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, no. we were not under the weather, but I didn't want to broadcast that. <laughs> yes, we were very hungover and could not record. Okay, let me just tell y'all, I literally don't drink. Well, I don't, I'm not going to say I don't drink, but it is like a maybe once in a year occasion for me. And when I do, I go all out. So we'll just put it like that. I am like a once a year kind of drinker too, unless something like what happened two weeks ago happens, then it's like twice a year type of thing. <laughs> yeah. But usually it's just for my birthday. That's yeah. when I get drunk. But yeah. um, that was the second time I've ever really drank with Brooke. And mm-hmm. let me tell you what, let me tell you guys what. Don't say anything embarrassing. I'm not. <laughs> Do you think you know someone? Until they get drunk. Okay. <laughs> but that is not me. <laughs> you do know me. That's not me. Well, like, I get stupid yeah. when I get drunk. I'm just stupid. But Brooke is, oh my God, she... I'm wild. Party. Party in a person. Party. That's what she is. <laughs> it was crazy. This bitch is, like, trying to force shots down my mouth. I'm like, dude, <laughs> I don't want this Malibu. I don't want it. Ah, uh, God, I hate myself. <laughs> But it, it, I mean, we did have kind of fun. So fun, but not fun because <laughs> you just had to have been there. Just had to have been there. Yeah, let's stop but. talking about it. <laughs> Anyways. And then the next week, um, someone on my family thought they had COVID. So we chose to wait until that person got their test results back, which they were, they were cleared. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're here today. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess without um, further ado, do you want, just want to go ahead and get started unless you have anything else to say at um, all? Um, 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 I don't think I have anything. Nope. Okay. Let's do it. All right. So this week I am covering the murder of Maddie Clifton. And honestly, this case, I have been putting it off for a while because it really bothers me mm-hmm. how just brutal and awful this murder is and just how it just seems like so random you know it, I mean it really wasn't but 
you know, to the families and stuff, it's like the, no one saw this coming. I'm interested to hear this because I know the name, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I know the story. So I know it's a pretty famous, it's a big one. Yeah. So, yeah. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. So it was November 3rd, 1998 in Jacksonville, Florida, when Madeline Ray Clifton, but she goes by Maddie, got home from school around 4.30 p.m. Once arriving, um, she was supposed to, like, help her family take down Halloween decorations. And so she did. So after she got done, um, she sat down at the piano and was just practicing playing for about 20 minutes. And then she decided to go outside and chip some golf balls with a man who lived on the same street named Larry Grishman. Um, only moments later after that, she returns home to find more golf balls because I guess they lost all of theirs. I don't really know what chip some golf balls mean, but mm-hmm, I, don't know. I assume hitting golf ball. Anyways, <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So um, I don't think she found any golf balls, and so she just headed back outside. Okay. Um, and so I feel like a lot of people, especially maybe you Gen Zers that listen to us, which I don't think we really have many. What is Gen Z? Like Autumn Ansley. and Ansley's age, okay. yeah. Okay, But... Like when Brooke and I were kids, even though there's a 10 year age difference between the two of us, I feel like we probably still had very similar upbringings where your parents let you go outside and then you didn't really come back inside till dinner time. Yeah. And you went to your neighbor's house. Your neighbors came to your house. You explored the woods. You were just gone. Yeah. All day hanging out with your, the neighborhood kids. My thing was like once like the streetlights came on. I think that was like everybody's back then. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we had streetlights in my neighborhood, but my Probably mom like be home by dark. I yeah, and I always remember my dad would come outside to the back door and he would shout all four of our names and yeah. be like, "Come home, it's time to eat." Mm-hmm. And so that's just what we did. I mean, we roamed the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of wooded areas behind our house, and we would always go explore them. And our parents never—I mean, they just let us do it because yeah. it was a different time. That's just what kids did. Absolutely. And so. What happened with Maddie? She was only eight years old. This is just what kids did. Mm-hmm. Nobody thought anything of it because we're talking the nineties. Even like, so when I was like eight, my I had a neighbor who whose four year old daughter would literally come play at our house. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not uncommon. It wasn't uncommon back then for like little kids to just yeah go do things. Yeah. You know. So um. Around 6.20 p.m., this is exactly what Maddie's mom did. Um, Her name was Sheila Clifton. Uh, She called for Maddie and her older sister, Jessica, who went by Jessie, to come home for dinner. Um, Pretty much immediately, Jessica gets home, Mm -hmm. but Maddie doesn't. Mm -hmm. And Sheila had assumed that Maddie was with Sheila. Mm -hmm. I mean, not Sheila, uh, Jessie. But she wasn't. So Jessie informs her mother that she hadn't seen Maddie in a while and that she wasn't sure where she was. So, of course, you know, Sheila doesn't really think too much about this, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, She just kind of thinks that Maddie's at a neighbor's house, you know, playing with some kids. She probably didn't hear her call for her or Mm -hmm. whatever. So she sets out to, you know, knock on their neighbor's door, but Maddie wasn't there. 
So she just kind of goes to all the different houses where she knows children live. Mm -hmm. And every door, they're like, nope, she's not here. We haven't seen her. She's not here. She's not here. I would be freaking out. Yeah. So, you know, the mom's kind of getting really fearful and overwhelmed right now. And um, she kind of recruits her neighbors to join in the search for Maddie. Mm -hmm. But no one was able to locate her. And Sheila is just so overcome with stress and fear for her daughter that she didn't even realize that she had urinated on herself while looking for Maddie. Yeah, I can't blame her. I can't either. Oh, my God. That would literally be me. Mm. Um, Maddie's father, Steve, says it was like she shut the door and just poof, vanished off the face of the earth. That is just so frightening to me. Yeah. So by 6.33, Sheila has become seriously concerned, like even more than before, and she calls 911. The neighborhood bands together to search for Maddie, bringing out flashlights. And, you know, there were kids riding their bikes, you know, yelling her name, Mm -hmm. um, including her sister, Mm Jessie. They searched for hours as the night kind of just faded into morning and still Maddie was nowhere to be found. So the next day, a Jacksonville sheriff's detective goes door to door trying to get any type of information he can possibly get about where Maddie could have gone. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, there wasn't much useful information. However, excuse me, guys. Larry Grisham becomes a person of interest due to the fact that he was the last one to see Maddie before she disappeared. He says that around 5.15 p.m., the night she disappeared, Maddie and him were using a strip of land between his home and a neighbor's house to chip golf balls whatever Mm -hmm. that means he said that maddie went home to get more golf balls but when she didn't return he just thought nothing of it considering Mm -hmm. it was getting late and her you know family must want her home and she was eight so not only is grisham one of the last people to see maddie but he's also 45 years old okay yeah that's what i'm thinking (laughs) this is a grown-ass man why is he playing with an eight-year-old right um we just a little side story Uh um when we were growing up this is when we lived in conyers in a condo and our next door neighbor was this old man and all the neighborhood kids would go to his house um his name was Cy. we were children i would say he was in his 80s but he was just a lonely old man he didn't have a wife um and we would go over there and he would give us diet coke and candy (laughs) and we would sit on his couch and hang out with him and i'm talking i was i mean elementary school you know probably probably at the latest like 10 and my sister was like seven and like all the neighborhood kids would go over there and this again this is in the 90s this is what you did you know it was just this lonely old man who loved us and uh, we just we'd hang out over there all the time. But now, like if my daughter was like, I'm going to go to this old man's house, I would be like, no, the hell you're not. Absolutely not. Like yeah. what? Why? You know, but it just there was nothing thought about it back then. Right. Like it was just sigh. And he was just the sweetest. And yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I hope he was a good man. <laughs> he was a very good man. He was yeah. so sweet and he just loved us. You know, he yeah. was lonely and mm-hmm. he just, it was almost like we were his grandkids. You right. Know? Yeah. So my mom, 
we weren't really allowed to go inside of people's homes, mm-hmm. but we were allowed to play in their yard. So yeah, and only if we asked permission. Like we couldn't just um, like m- all my neighbors, they would just go anywhere they wanted to. But my parents were like, you know, what? I just at least want to know what house you're going to. Oh yeah, so. I don't know. It's not even like that now. Like I, I can't imagine even letting Ansley like walk down the street to go like three no. houses down. No, you know I, what I like, mean. Honestly, I can't even imagine letting Titus spend the night at people's I houses. Know, you always say that because I know the kind of dumb shit mm-hmm. i did when i was a kid with my friends mm-hmm. there's no way i think i would let i would let his friends come to our house you might change your mind though well i mean like when he's a teenager but not yeah. when he's like six you, you know like a young kid you yeah. know what i mean yeah you just never know the people that live in that house or the people that come and go through that house and well and especially <clears throat> like with the language barrier you know and him not being able yeah. to communicate as well maybe as a neurotypical child would right you know? if he did that would maybe be a little bit different well even if he was eight and he could communicate perfectly i don't still think don't think i would let him know no 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 wow. and i mean like what my mom did is if i ever met a friend at school or something like that she would take me to their house but she would sit and she would talk with their moms Parents, and yeah. their dad and I would hang out with my friend for a few hours and mm-hmm. then we'd go home. And if she felt like they were good people, yeah, she would let me go spend the night and hang out there and whatnot. Um, I might would do that. Yeah. I might would do that. But I also might not. I might just not let him because. I don't know. My parents, like it was always just like, let me talk to the parent on the phone. You know? Yeah. My, no, my mom had to meet them in wow. person. And like sit there and talk for a mm-hmm. few hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. If a parent did that to me right now, I would feel so uncomfortable. Yeah. But <laughs> like if Ansley's friend's mom was mm-hmm. like, well, I'm going to have to come hang out with her mom for a while to make sure she's okay. I'd be like, nah, your friend can just not come over. <laughs> <laughs> I would do it because I want to know who my kid's hanging out with. Yeah. But, yeah. And if that makes them feel better about me, then by all accounts i'd want them to with ansley though ansley is so upfront and honest with me about Mm -hmm. you know the things that her friends do and you know um i don't know i don't have to worry about it so much she's she's she is a really good kid yeah she is a very good kid so but anyway that was like a five minute yeah that turned into something (laughs) that (laughs) i don't even know how scotty feels about that so if you're listening i guess we should talk about it (laughs) anyways you know he's listening i know (laughs) So, um, so yeah, like he's 45 and hanging out with an eight year old girl, which is just weird. Creepy. This isn't like an old lonely man. Like this is like a middle-aged, like you should not be hanging out with an eight year old. Right. Exactly. And not only that, but he also has a criminal history. Hell no. And, um, he also fails a police polygraph. Yeah. So it's really not looking good. Mm. And his criminal history includes... 29 counts of various charges including auto theft driving under the influence and two counts of sexual battery no that were five years apart but both charges were dropped so oh god yeah do the parents know this man well i don't know it didn't really say Mm. but um anyways so police searched Larry's home nine times and questioned him 20 times because they were absolutely sure he had something to do with Maddie's disappearance. But despite failing that polygraph, he had a strong alibi. 
He also offers his DNA to police to police in hopes of proving his innocence in case they were to find Maddie. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a week, Sheila and Steve Clifton worked with the authorities to find their daughter. Tons of volunteers looked through neighborhoods, swamps, nearby woodlands, searching for even like the smallest bit of evidence mm-hmm. to see, you know, which direction she could have gone. Um, police even used cadaver dogs from house to house searching through sheds and garages and empty buildings, but they still could not find her. Oh my God. On Friday, three days after Maddie disappeared, authorities called in the U.S. Army Reserve to look through culverts and open manholes. Missing persons posters were printed and distributed. They were pasted on poles, nailed to trees, taped on storefronts. People started wearing yellow ribbons and hanging them in trees in hopes of finding Maddie. When nothing still shows up for Maddie, the Cliftons make a desperate decision to approach the press about it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They beg their captors, they beg her captors for her whereabouts and even offer a $50,000 reward reward for news on her whereabouts with the possibility of doubling it. So could possibly possibly be $100,000 and back in 98, I'm sure that was a lot more than it is now. So, in the press interview, whatever it is, um, the Cliftons speak to Maddie directly, saying, Maddie, if you are out there and you can hear us, we are ready for you to come back home. Please come home. So, the search intensifies and people start wearing shirts with her face on it. And on more than 10 billboards throughout Jacksonville her face mm-hmm. and like you know have you seen me whatever mm-hmm. they broadcast her on television hoping that someone somewhere had any information on their daughter fear that the clifton's other daughter jesse could become a target as well he... a police officer takes up residence in the clifton home to ensure her safety wow. all the while just jesse's parents are falling apart mm-hmm. but she tries to stay strong for them mm-hmm which I think is so brave, so brave. So at the end of that dreadful week, while police are still following leads and the Cliftons are targeting every angle they can, you know, find to use to find their daughter, a horrifying discovery is made that ends the search for Maddie. Oh, no. Melissa Phillips sends her son, Josh, off to school. It's it's just past 7 a.m. and she has just a few hours to spare before having to go to work. Um, so she decides to use this time to tidy up Josh's room because apparently it was horrendous. Mm-hmm. And it smelled horrible. Oh. Yeah. So um, Melissa says, I've, I'd been nagging him about his room because it was in a deplorable condition. So I had a garbage bag, and I was going to start putting stuff in it that I knew was trash. So while she's in there, she notices a damp spot on the floor at the corner of Josh's waterbed. I think I know this now. It's coming together. After looking around the room for the source of the foul odor, thinking thinking it might have been old rotting, you know, food because he's a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, He also had birds in Mm -hmm. the bird cages, so it could have been rotten bird food who knows or shit 
she, yeah or shit mm-hmm. she thinks that this is probably what's making the horrible smell mm-hmm. um josh had been telling her like i think for a couple of weeks that his waterbed was leaking so she just assumed it the smell was like mildew or mold yeah so um she decides to investigate the leak in the bed before cleaning his room this is a quote from melissa about the incident so she just and she's just describing what happened oh god once she finds this wet spot as i lifted the corner of the mattress i noticed a white sock and figured it was one of josh's so i started to pull on it but it wouldn't budge i wondered how it got there in the first place and was puzzled as to why it would not pull free about that time i noticed black electrical tape holding the black frame of the pedestal together and surmised the bed must have been leaking for quite some time and apparently josh had attempted to hold it together with the tape so he wouldn't get in trouble the tape freely pulled away from the pedestal and the wood gave way just enough that i could at least see the sock better i grabbed it and this time felt something else oh my god i still had no idea what i was about to find but needed more light so i went to another room and retrieved a flashlight as I pulled the pedestal slightly away, the sock fell down and I felt something cold. Oh my god. At the same time, the beam of flashlight showed me something I could never have been pre- prepared to see. It could not be what I thought it was, yet somehow I knew exactly what I had found. The missing little girl from across the street. Oh. So, in case that wasn't clear enough for anyone... She found Maddie Clifton's body mm-hmm. stuffed into her son's bed. Oh, it was, was it under the bed? So, um, or I, was it like in between, like the frame and the water? I so I I'm not entirely sure. It I think it was like like behind. I guess where the headboard would be, like in between, like the headboard and like where like the mattress would be. Not the mattress, but maybe the like the wood where I guess yeah. the mattress would go on. Yeah. I'm not entire, entirely sure. I wish I had seen a picture of it to really understand it, but oh. I don't know. I would. What a sight for the mother to find. I'm wondering if it was like, you know, like what a captain's bed is? You know how it's like, well, Google a picture of it eventually and um i think it it might have been something like that where it's like a solid wood bed and maybe you know you could kind of open it and he could stuff her like kind of in the bed okay i'm looking right now actually so here's like a diagram of how it was so okay she was under it under it okay she was under it in between like the um mattress supports look check this picture out so she was kind of like crouched, like pushed up under there. Oh my god, Ugh. so horrifying! Could you see that well? A a little bit. Like okay, so that's the bed frame, like that's the headboard there, mm-hmm. and she was like, "Okay, yeah, I see it now." Oh my gosh, the poor girl. Ugh. Okay, now I need to know how this happened. So obviously she was in absolute shock so she immediately tries to call her husband steve 
which is um kind of confusing because um maddie's father is named steve and then josh's father is named steve so um but he doesn't answer the phone so she leaves a voicemail saying that he needs to call her immediately and that it's an emergency She's unsure of what to do, but makes the decision to find an officer in the neighborhood, considering there were still a few continuing their investigation. Mm-hmm. Around 7.30 a.m., Officer Donald F. I don't know how to pronounce this. T-U-T-E-N. T-U-T-E-N. Tootin. Tootin. <laughs> <laughs> officer Tootin. Officer Tootin. That's what, how I was reading it in my head, but I don't know. I mean. Tootin, Tutton. Yeah, I, something like I'm just gonna call him Donald. Just call him Tootin. Tootin. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so Officer Donald F. Tootin is sitting in his car while on surveillance duty in the neighborhood when he sees a woman emerging from her house in his rearview mirror, and she is fastly approaching him. And when she gets about ten or twenty feet behind his vehicle, he notices that she is crying and looks extremely distraught. He steps from his vehicle to ask if she was in need of help. So at first, she was not able to verbalize, like, why she needed him. Yeah. Um, But as soon as she was able to compose herself, she tells the officer that that she found something at her house that he, like, needs to see right then. He asks her what it is, but Melissa refuses to say anything and just begs him to come immediately like could you imagine having to say i found this girl's body under my son's bed yeah and where is the kid at this point he's at school oh okay okay yeah so officer tayton radios for two detectives that were in the area to um come with him basically the three detectives follow melissa back to her house and she just could not go back into the room and Mm-mm. see what she had just found Mm-mm. again. Um, so she just simply points to where they need to go. And as soon as the officers open up Josh's bedroom door, Ugh. they are immediately hit with the stench of death and decay. Yeah. They look towards the waterbed and see two little feet in white socks sticking out from the bottom cavity of the bed. Aww. Yeah. Like, how did the whole house not smell like that? It did. Oh, and the- we'll talk about that later. Okay. Um, so Melissa starts to break down again once she, you know, sees that the officers realize what's happening. And Officer Tootin takes melissa outside into the backyard to like kind of understand like what's happening Mm -hmm. so after relaying her morning's events to them she tells the officer i was so scared i thought oh my god oh my god oh my god it can't be true it can't be her it can't be please let it be something else um and then she also tells the officer that she she says i remember looking at the clifton's house as i walked towards the patrol car thinking Right now, they still have hope. In a few minutes, they'll know. And that is so sad. So the officers seal off the bedroom and pronounce it as a crime scene. Mm -hmm. So they did not go in there and disrupt anything, which Mm -hmm. is good. Mm -hmm. Um, The officers assist Melissa into an unmarked police car to take her to the 
police station, I guess, for questioning. And while all of this is happening, Steve gets the voicemail from Melissa and he hurries home, but is barred from entering his house. And there's just a shit ton of police surrounding his house. Mm -hmm. So the sad thing that the the detectives have to do is go to the Clifton's house and Uh. tell them of the horrible news. Um... So when they knock on the door, Steve and Sheila Clifton can immediately tell that the news was going to be bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Steve asked the detectives where they found her and they replied across the street. Yep. And so Jessica, Jesse, emerges from upstairs while all this is going on, unaware of like what's happening. Yeah. She said... Everyone was crying and upset, and I got pulled into the middle of the circle, and they said, Jesse, we found Maddie. She is no longer with us. I cried and ran out of the garage door, and I started yelling her name because I didn't want to think it was true. I fell to the concrete, screaming her name. Uh-uh. So, four days after her neighbor and former play- playmate, Josh Phillips, confessed to her murder, Maddie's funeral was held on November 14th. 1,200 people mourning Maddie attended in show of respect and sympathy. Wow. Hundreds more stood outside in silence as the service took place. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, like this whole community. Came together. Yeah. Maddie Clifton was eight years old and had chestnut brown hair and freckles sprinkled all over her face. Mm-hmm. She was always smiling and loved to giggle. She was described as tough as nails. She loved to play basketball, hockey, football, and she loved to dance and play the piano. Oh. Um, her neighbor, Jim Poston, said she was an she was an amazing little girl. She could be a little ballerina at one time and a tough football fullback at another time. Mm. And when she talked, she made sure you listened. Another neighbor, Bertie Hollins, says um, about Maddie. She was a very sweet little girl. Everybody loved her. She used to come to my house for cookies, and she swam in our pool. Oh. So, Reverend Tony Palazzolo, 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 I don't know, P-A-L-A-Z-Z-O-L-O. Palazzolo? Yeah, Palazzolo. It's reminding me of Pazuzu. Yeah. (laughs) I watched uh, something on YouTube about him the other night. I think I'm going to cover him soon. I Every time I'm, like, debating on what to cover, he always comes to mind first, and I know people have requested him, but I don't want to do him. No? So, you can do him. Okay. But he always, he comes to mind because so many people have requested it, so. Okay, well, I'll do it. So, Reverend Tony Palazzolo, Palazzolo says to the congregation, Maddie has done what no politician has ever done. She has united us out of love for God and love for one another. Even though Maddie is no longer physically in our midst, I believe God has given her back to us as the angel of Jacksonville, as the spirit of love. Um, Police um, had interviewed Melissa, Steve, and Josh during the investigation and finding Maddie. And Josh was a person of interest, but not yet a suspect. Hmm. Police had asked Josh if he had seen Maddie, but he initially states that he had seen Maddie the day before her disappearance, but not after that. Did she know him well? 
Yeah, like um, to somebody she had said that Josh was like her best friend. Oh. But it, he's not a good kid. Mm. So um, he also tells the police that they're not allowed to play together due to their age difference. But I think yeah. it's a lot more than that because he was 14. Yeah, that's she was eight. That's kind of ew. Yeah. I mean, like when I was a kid, we would have a group of people hanging out together and like I would be eight, someone would be 10, someone would be 14. Right, right. Like a group. An eight and a 14 year old. That's weird. By themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Exactly. Well, like a boy and a girl. Exactly. Yeah. Because I remember like when I was 14. Yeah. You know, little kids look up to you. Yeah. You know, but. No, not a little girl and a teenage boy. Yeah, it's weird. No, no. Yeah. So the officers searched, had searched their shed and the family car, but found nothing. On November 9th, the day before Maddie's body was found, officers asked the parents if they could speak with Josh again. And Steve says they could go on ahead and do it, considering it was like the fifth or sixth time yeah. they had done it. Um, Steve says at least four or five of them were in Josh's room for a good 10 minutes going through his room. Steve says that there was an odor in his room that night, but none of the officers said anything about it. This is the day before her body was found. Wow. After the officers left, Steve tells Josh to clean his room because he thought the odor was coming from rotten bird food lying at the bottom of the bird cages. This, he says the smell was stronger than ever before, but off and on, it's been there. And it's usually when he doesn't clean the bird cages out in time. But to me, I just feel like a dead body and like rotten bird food probably smell very different. Ugh. I've never smelled a dead body, but I just can't assume Yeah, it would be different. Ugh. After homicide detectives go into the Phillips home when only... Okay, I messed that up. Another homicide detective goes into the Phillips home when only Josh was there and interviews him as he sits on his bed. What? So Josh is sitting on his bed and the detective is in there. Her body is decaying away. Yeah. Yeah. According to the officer report, the smell in the bedroom was very strong and smelled of decomp. (laughs) Yeah. What the fuck? When officers picked Josh up from school for his arrest the day they found Maddie's body, Detective Taylor smelled decomposition on Joshua's clothes. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. He had been living in that room for a week. That is disgusting. Yeah. Prosecutors and police claimed that the smell was so strong that it was impossible not to notice. Mm. But these detectives... What the fuck is wrong with them? Yeah. After the trial, state attorney Harry L. Shorstein calls the Phillips ignorance of its source unbelievable. The odor at the time the body was found was extremely strong. But my thing is, is like, you don't expect your son to fucking murder a yeah. kid. Yeah. Like, you probably, they, they're probably smelling this horrible odor and just. Like, clean your fucking room. Right, you disgusting teenage boy. Yeah. But they're probably not like. Oh, he has a dead body in his room. I'm like sitting here now, like Ansley's room smells awful. Do I need to like go check under her bed? (laughs) (laughs) Teenagers are disgusting. And I'm telling you, girls are worse. Oh, I don't know. Because like when I was a kid, 
um of course we all had messy rooms but mm-hmm. our rooms smelled fine but you went into my brother's room and it smelled awful all the time like yeah. boys are just Ansley's room never smells bad to me it just Ooh, looks disgusting it does to me really yes i walk in there i'm like <laughs> i don't know it just smells like your house to me and your house smells good because brick has like a million candles and air fresheners going all at once it's like like i get headaches from being here sometimes <laughs> ashley when she walked in yesterday she was like it smells so good in here i was like people always say that but i just don't smell it anymore you know yeah no, that's how it is in my house too like i have the plug-ins and then i have mm-hmm. a wax warmer mm-hmm. and i like i'll smell it like the moment i walk into my house but it quickly just yeah. vanishes after that yeah so um so you know the um the state attorney, Harry L. Shorstein, is basically calling the parents, you know, ignorance of the smell unbelievable. But, like, how many officers walked into this kid's bedroom yeah. and did it? And they should know what death smells like. Exactly. More than anyone, they should know. Yeah. Who suspects that their kid did that, you know? I, I think it makes more sense for the officers to, or for the parents not to have realized than for the officers not to have realized. Definitely. So, um, now we're just going to kind of rewind and go back to when Josh was arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, he ends up at the police station with his mom and dad, where he is encouraged by his dad to tell the truth. By the time Melissa and Steve get a lawyer, Josh has already made his statement freely, although he hadn't put it in writing yet. His lawyer prevents him from talking further with the police. The statement Josh gave went like this. Prepare for some heinousness, oh, guys. So just kind of trigger warning. I want to know about this kid's background. Like, why is he so fucked? So I, okay. So I read a book. This is where I got all my source from a book oh. about this. And I meant to mention this in the beginning, but I will tell you right now. It's called um, Kids Who Kill. Wait. Kids Who Kill. Um, Joshua Phillips and it's by Catherine McMaster okay. um, I bought it on the Ken- on Kindle okay. for I think it was like $3.99 mm-hmm. so if you want to know more details about this case because they kind of go into Josh's backstory but there wasn't too much I'm not even really going to talk about his backstory because it just I mean, he's a 14 year old kid you know yeah came from a family his dad was kind of an alcoholic and kind of a dick mm-hmm. but other than that he seemed like a normal kid so there was no signs of him being violent or not really no no but i mean and it's not a long book so if anybody wants to read it 3.99 on i bought it off of amazon on (laughs) for the kindle but anyways so um so josh's statement he claimed that maddie came over to his house to play but he tells her that he was busy with chores 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 he describes having 22 chores to do that afternoon assigned to him by his parents Wow! Um, while they were, you know, at work. He goes on to tell the officers that he had put off doing his chores to surf the Internet. Computer records show that Josh was on the Internet between 4.22 p.m. and 4.57 p.m. These records indicate that Josh was looking at porn websites involving images of children and torture. Oh, no. Yeah. 
When Maddie came to his house, it was around 5.15 while he was outside raking leaves. She walked up to the chain link fence and asks him if he wants to play baseball. Um, he agrees that she can come over for a little while and play, but only for a few minutes because if his father would have came home and seen Maddie there, yeah, he would have been really angry. Because he's supposed to be doing his chores? Well, or because there's an eight year old girl there because he's not allowed to have anybody at the house. Okay. His father, you know, kind of, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, he was basically like, this is true because, you know, when we're not at home, he's not allowed to go out and play and he's not allowed to have anybody in. And um, his mom said that these chores were supposed to keep him busy from the time he got out of school to the time his dad got home so that he wouldn't get into any mischief. So Josh and Maddie take turns pitching the ball and hitting it with a bat. And Josh says that the space that they were playing in allows for only about four feet between the two. And... To me, why are you throwing a ball and swinging a bat if there's only four feet in between you guys? That doesn't even make I, sense to me. I mean, look at me and you right now. What are we, eight feet apart? And this is still too close to be doing that. Yeah, <laughs> literally. That li- four feet is so dumb. But anyways, um, so um, with Josh's next swing, um, he had planned to hit the ball over the house but accidentally hit Maddie in the head with the ball, not the bat. Um, like he hit the ball, I guess, and it hit her uh-huh. um, near her left eye. So she falls to the ground and starts crying and wailing loudly. Josh claims to have tried to clean the blood off the ball as best he could before putting it inside the house with his baseball glove. And all the while, Maddie, Maddie is still, you know, yelling and screaming. And... You know, I guess Josh is feeling overwhelmed and he's unsure of what to do. So, um, she kind of calms down a little bit and Josh, you know, takes her inside of the house. But at first he's kind of carrying her and then he drags her into the house, into his room. I don't know. That's what the book said. Um, Josh became fearful that his father would be angry at him for playing with Maddie. And so he panics and Maddie is just bleeding profusely and beginning to start screaming again. So to quiet her down, he places his hand over her mouth, but she still continues to scream. And I'm just thinking, yeah, probably because you have your hand over her fucking mouth. Right. Like that doesn't calm anybody down. That's just going to add to the fear aspect. Oh my God. So she's still screaming. So in order to quote unquote, shut her up, he takes the baseball bat and clubs her with a strong overhand swing. No. Then he hits her a second time by jamming the end of the bat on her head. And then with the third hit, he swings the bat as hard as he can to her head. Was there not like blood splatter and stuff in his bedroom? A little bit, but he cleaned. Oh. Yeah. So these head injuries alone would have eventually killed her. But she still laid on the ground whimpering and moaning. Oh, my God. And Josh wanted her to stop making noise altogether. So um, he took out his Leatherman knife that was on his bookshelf and slashes her neck, stabbing her twice in the throat. What the fuck? No, this... Okay, no. Something is wrong with this kid. Yeah. 
So now Josh is panicking that his dad is going to walk in and see what he did. So he opens up the side of his waterbed and shoves Maddie inside. Then he goes to the bathroom to clean the blood from his hands. Wow. But wait, there's more. Oh, no. After washing his hands and whatnot, he walks back by the bedroom and notices that Maddie is still moaning (gasps) underneath the bed. Oh, my God. So what does this motherfucker do? He reopens the bed, pulls Maddie out, and then stabs her in the chest nine times on both sides until she stops breathing. He pushes Maddie back under the bed with his feet, closes the panel, and never hears Maddie again. Oh, my God. At 5.35 p.m., Steve gets home from work, makes a snack and a cocktail, and then sits on the couch. Steve claims that Josh is the type of kid to come running out and give me a hug and a kiss but he didn't do that on this particular day so steve calls out to josh asking what he's doing and josh appears without a shirt on and his hands in front of him and he says i was in the bathroom putting my acne medicine on when are we going to eat i'm really hungry dad and then he goes back into his room and closes the door Mm. not even moments later um I think it was Jesse showed up at their door asking if they had seen Maddie. Literally. Minutes later. Minutes. All of this happened within like a 20 minute time span, which to me, we'll get into that in a minute. But So when the police asked Josh about Maddie's state of undress, because when she was found, she is naked from the waist down. Josh Josh says her shorts and underwear came off when he was dragged into his room when he dragged her into his room and that her shoes came off when he shoved her under under the bed a second time. Um so I don't think that they found any indication that he had sexually assaulted her. But they did find is this enzyme on his pants and coincidentally enough the clothes that he wore the day he killed Maddie were the same clothes he wore when he was arrested. Ooh. Yeah. And they found this enzyme like on the crotch of his pants that's only apparent in large amounts of semen. Oh. Or in like in saliva. So, so he like either got way, off when weird. he was killing her probably. Probably. That was my thought. Oh. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah, but they can't prove that that's what happened or, yeah. I mean, he is a teenage boy. Yeah. So. Um, so Josh also described how he had slept on that bed the entire week. That's so gross. And he was burning incense and using air fresheners and like wall plug-ins and, you know, those gel ones you like mm-hmm. open up to mask the odor. But obviously <sighs> it did not, probably made it smell like fruity decay, like, ugh. According to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office homicide report, Steve Clifton mentions that he has a strong he has a Jesus he has a strong suspicion about Josh and that he believes Josh is obsessed with his older daughter Jessie. Mm-hmm. The Clifton house had been burglarized and vandalized several times, and different things within the house had gone missing, such as two portable telephone handsets. 
He also mentions how they often went away on weekend fishing trips, and when they would get back, they would notice their house was broken into, like, several times. Oh, my God. Around the summer of 1998, the Cliftons noticed a hole in the sheetrock of Maddie's closet behind her clothes. They also found holes made in the sheetrock wall behind posters in Jessica's room. Hmm. I don't know what that means, but... Like he was like in the attic spying on them or something? Maybe. I have no idea. So the girls had also come home from school a few times to notice their windows were broken. <sighs> they also found staples fired into the girls' beds, into their walls, and into the staircase. What? There were even pry marks on the windows. I would be moving out. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Um, so alongside Steve's staple gun being missing, so was a picture of Jessica wearing a leotard in a gymnastics pose or uh. position. And they found that picture in his room. Wow. Yeah. Josh is held in the Duval County Juvenile Detention Center in isolation and will be there until the trial in the next year, which would be 1999. Mm-hmm. They said putting him in isolation was for his safety due to his age. And state attorney Harry L. Shorstein, Shorstein, I don't know what it is, goes on record on November 16th to say that the state plans to try Josh, who is 14, as an adult. He goes on to say, the murder of this young girl has shaken me, just, just as it has the rest of the community. Appropriate resources within my office will be devoted to making sure that Maddie Clifton's murderer is brought to justice. On November 19th, 1998, Josh is indicted for the murder of Maddie Clifton in the first degree. Josh is able to avoid the death penalty in Florida due to his age. Yeah. On March 22nd, Judge Charles W. Arnold changes the court venue from Jacksonville to Polk County to preserve the integrity of the case because, you know, the in- yeah. it was going to be hard to find a jury. That was unbiased. Right. Yeah. So on July 6, 1999, the jury is chosen and the defense lawyers warned them at trial opening that they need to prepare themselves for the photographs of Maddie Clifton's decomposed body. Ooh. The disturbing nature of the photographs cannot be overstated. Which they kind of wanted, this was the defense, so yeah. they're like, keep an open mind. Oh, Pretty yeah. much, so stupid. The trial was set where the defense, basically where the defense was like, this was a murder built from fear and panic because, you know, if his, fa- if his father would have known that he was playing with Maddie and then hurt her, he would be so angry and he would probably take his temper out on um, Josh and, you know, he just didn't want that to happen. So he did what he thought was best in a moment of panic, pretty much. Yeah. They were trying to go for, like, manslaughter. I I believe that to an extent. Like, maybe initially it was panic, but he went way overboard. Yeah. Well, there's more to the book. I really couldn't fit it all in here because I'm already at an hour. I knew this was going to be a long case, but... um, a lot of like eyewitnesses and phone records going towards the the Clifton house were like from <coughs> excuse me they were like from Josh and so he just lied about a lot of stuff and the more evidence that they were uh, like acquiring it seemed like premeditation yeah 
but it was so much there's so much and it's all like like you know kind of little stuff here and there yeah i didn't really have enough time to add that all in here but i'm saying just read the book it's very informative they have like the whole trial in there i also have just kind of brief summaries of things that happened in the trial Mm -hmm. so and so the prosecution was saying that it was premeditated premeditated murder um so ultimately after two hours of deliberation the jury found josh guilty of first degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison damn in closing judge arnold says i do not perceive you to be a child your monstrous acts made you an adult and then he quotes um the bible verse luke 17 2 it would be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and that you were thrown into the sea than to cause harm to a child he also says i'm certain on your judgment day joshua earl patrick phillips will be given a harsher sentence than i could ever impose so that is the murder of maddie clifton wow wow yeah i i like i said i knew the name and when you started talking about waterbed i was like okay but uh, yeah. I didn't know many details of it. So the 45-year-old was just a random guy that just liked hanging out with an 8-year-old? Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Yeah. And um, uh, she, not Sheila, um, Melissa and Steve Phillips, uh-huh. they, they were trying to like say that his confession was coerced and that they planted those pornographic websites and his search history uh, and all this other dumb shit and it's just like no it's just, like i get like finding out that your son is a murderer must especially oh, yeah. your 14 year old son that must be absolutely awful absolutely just hor. i could not imagine yeah but he did kill someone and the other family is paying dearly for that. Absolutely. The um, father's statement was actually very sad. It's very long, which is why I didn't add it in there. But he, very good with words. Yeah. Because he had talked about how, you know, not only did Josh take away, you know, Maddie from this world, but he took her away from, you know, his wife and him and you know how it's going to affect jesse for the rest of her entire life and yeah. how you know because he killed maddie she you know will never have an aunt for her children yeah. and her you know it just it, it was very very upsetting to read because i mean that that's all true it is and just the fear that must have been going through that little girl you know while this imagine. was happening no that I think that's the worst part of when kids are murdered, mm-hmm. when your kids are murdered, is just not knowing the amount of fear and pain that your child had to endure. Mm. It's crazy. To and me. she suffered. Oh, she suffered. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, three hits to the head with a baseball bat. Still alive. Two stabs to the throat. <sighs> nine times on each side of her chest. Oh, poor baby. It's fucking insane and brutal and i'm and i'm so glad that he's in prison as an adult for the rest of his life because yes that's a scary person oh goodness well i guess we'll take a quick break here and then we'll come back with brooke's story bye
Hello again. Welcome back. To part two. I am covering the Clara Harris case. So let's dive right into it. Okay. David Lynn Harris and Clara Harris were a charming couple. David, an orthodontist, and Clara, a dentist. Oh, wow. They had met in 1991 when they were both in their early 30s and working at the Castle Dental Center in Houston. Together, they owned a chain of successful orthodontic offices in Texas. Oh, so successful couple. Very successful. Okay. The offices brought in around 650000 a year. Wow. The successful and popular couple owned a beautiful mansion in Friendswood, Texas, which was a South Houston suburb. The pair owned luxury cars, including Clara's S-Class 430 Mercedes-Benz, and they owned a lake house and a ski chalet in Colorado. Must be nice. Fancy, fancy. Must be nice. Right. Clara was highly intelligent, and she was a former beauty queen. She was a Columbia, South South America, South Carolina, (laughs) South America native who had come to America in her 20s to, quote, live the American dream. And she was certainly doing so. Oh, yeah. David, who was brilliant when it came to teeth, had graduated second in his class, and he had a charming folksy nature with his favorite word being golly. Golly gee. Golly. Golly. Just sounds like a silly fella. Mm -hmm. The couple had married on Valentine's Day in 1993, less than one year after meeting, and they were completely smitten with each other. By 2002, they were raising three children, their twin sons, Brian and Bradley, who were born in 1998, and David's teenage daughter, Lindsay, from a previous marriage. Lindsay was just four years old when the couple had wed, so her stepmother was a huge part of her life. She even called her mom. Wow. Lindsay lived with her mother in Ohio during the school year, but she stayed with her dad and stepmom in Texas during the summers. I feel like you cover a lot of Texas murders. I do. Yeah. A lot. I don't know what's going on in Texas, man. Everything's bigger in Texas. I'm telling you. Including their murders. Uh-huh. Clara had the perfect life, she liked to tell her patients. Uh, one of her coworkers quoted, For Clara, it was always David, David, David. I used to tell people that I wished I could be able to love my husband in the same way that Clara loved David. Things with the Harrises uh, looked picture perfect from the outside, but internally, by July of 2002, things weren't going so hot for the couple. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Clara began to suspect that her husband was having an affair with his newly hired secretary, Gail Bridges. Oh, not Gail. No. Gail was recently divorced, and she had three small children. Although she was not particularly attractive, in my opinion, um, she was a small and petite lady, and she looked well put together. But if you see pictures of her, she's, she's not hot. David, come on now. Well, sometimes it's the inside that counts. Sometimes you shouldn't have an affair on your wife. No, but. I agree. <laughs> but I'm just saying. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm just saying. And and Claire was a beautiful woman. Gail was not. But I feel like that's usually the way it goes. No, it, <clears throat> it is. <laughs> 100%. 
So um, David, of course, denied the affair, um, but Clara's suspicions continued, and she hired a private detective to watch and follow David's every move. That's what you do. That's That's what you do when you got money. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, David did fess up, and he said that he and Gail had been having an affair, and he promised Clara that he would end it under special circumstances that he expected of Clara. Excuse me? Uh Uh-huh. A typical man thing to do. Yeah, you I will do this. stop my affair if you do this giant list of unattainable things. Oh, yeah. Just wait. Your mind's about to be blown. The couple who had wed 10 years earlier sat down in a piano bar to discuss the crisis of their marriage. Clara told David that she wanted to know what was so special about his secretary. Why her? Always that question. Why her? What did she do that I didn't? Right. Clara said, do you love her as she's dying inside? I don't know. David answered less than honestly. I started to shake. Clara later said, I cried and he tried to hold me. I didn't want him to touch me. No one from David's circle believed that the orthodontist was really in love with Gail. If anything, he was infatuated with her for a while. Nothing more said a close friend who asked not to be identified he was never going to leave his wife and that's how it is ladies they don't ever leave the wife they want their cake and And eat it too real shit they ain't gonna leave their wife leave them alone while they were out david grabbed clara's arms and told her i'll do anything not to get a divorce At Clara's request, David made a series of painful comparisons between Clara and the secretary, Gail. Ouch. Wait, Clara wanted him to do that? Yes. Like, basically, like, why her? Tell me what's better about her than me. You know, I could see myself doing the same thing. Like, you want to know, like, what is it that's drawing you to her? Like, what? Why? Would I want to change to be like that, though? Right. So he told the broken hearted Clara among other things, that Gail had a perfect body and zero fat, so he enjoyed holding her through the night and that they shared great conversation. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Oh, if if a man said that to me, I would probably just die right then and there. <laughs> right. Like, I got a lot of fat. And oh, stop it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Imagine your husband saying that to you. That just... That's devastating. That cuts deep. No, that is like... I mean, I know she asked for it, but like, did you have to say that? I'd rather my husband just say, I don't love you anymore because your personality than right. um, I'm having comparisons. an affair because you're fat and she's not. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> or Ugh. you have fat. Yeah. He also said, according to his wife, that Gail was good with money, unlike his wife, who admitted spending a lot on toys for their twin boys and decorating their white brick mansion. That sounds like perfectly reasonable things to spend your money on to me right especially when you're rich she's not taking men out for dinners or anything like that the faithful and devoted wife said that she was shocked by her husband's remark about holding his lover through the night yeah and she said i couldn't believe that he could sleep holding her all night because we had never slept like that never like that just that hurts wow did he just like not come home sometimes I, I guess so yeah yeah that's that's really risky having an affair with someone you work with uh-huh his next comparison was even more devastating not only 
did David admit to having sex with his mistress, but the sex, he said, was a fantasy come true. He said that Gail had sex with him three times a day. The upset wife says that she decided that she would double that. Six times a day ain't no way. (laughs) David again said he did not want to divorce, but he had a list of demands for Clara if she too wanted to save the marriage. Wait, I thought he would do anything for her to not divorce him. What happened to that? (laughs) Yeah, but he has these demands. And when I read these demands to you, you're going to be like, oh, no, girl, go. Run. It's awful. So she should quit working, dye her hair blonde, lose weight, get breast implants, stop nagging him, and have sex with him more often. Clara agreed. What What color was her hair? Brown. She quit her job, deciding to dedicate her entire life to her family and paid a $5,000 deposit and set an appointment for her plastic surgery. Oh, my God. She spent $1,500 for a year's membership to a fitness club and went every day to a hairdresser and several times to a tanning salon. So interesting little side note here that I read about in Texas. All assets in a divorce are shared 50-50 unless a spouse can prove infidelity. And then assets for the spouse that was cheated on rise to 90%. Wow. So she could have just left him and took everything. Yeah. Even more fucked, the entire office knew of the affair but kept their mouth shut in fear of losing their jobs. Okay. Honestly, that is the shittiest thing yeah. in the world. Like, if you know somebody is cheating on their significant other or having an affair, say something anonymously. Yeah. You know? you that, yeah. Say something. Don't let this poor woman or this poor man. And everybody in the office, like, knew Clara. And you like, know what I mean? Every time she came in, they're thinking. Yeah. They're, they know. Like, and they're ha-ha. just not saying anything. Yeah. And that's so humiliating for her. Truly. Truly. But um, yeah. So let's just say that Gail Bridges was not shy about showing her affection for her married boss. Um, Basically, she would bend over and like people would notice like she like would like you know try to look all sexy um at one point he was caught like rubbing her thigh like it was not like i said they everybody knew about it so that's not the orthodontist i want to go to yeah so now it is july 24th and it was time for david's part of the agreement he was to officially end things with gail i bet he doesn't he promised to go to dinner with da- uh, with Gail and end it you, once you and for all. You don't even have to do that. Just call her. You're fired. It's over. Bye. Yeah. But he said, I'm going to go to dinner with her. I'm going to break it, you know, break the news and it'll be over. That evening, Clara set out to make sure that David was holding up to his end of the bargain. And he, uh, or I'm sorry, she drove past the restaurant with her 16-year-old stepdaughter, Lindsay, in tow. Lindsay knew about the affair and offered to go and help the stepmother that she loved so much and to be her emotional support. Oh, no. So, yeah, it was kind of like Lindsay was Team Clara, you know. David's car and Gail's SUV were nowhere to be found. Clara and Lindsay went to three other restaurants and by Gail's home, all to no avail. Hmm. 
Finally, Clara was tipped off by the private investigator that she'd hired and was told that David and Gail were at a local Hilton hotel. In fact, as if the fact that David had lied wasn't enough, they were at the same hotel that Clara and David had been wed at 10 years earlier. Oh my God. Ouch. For a man that says golly, he sure is a fucking asshole. Oof. Like this whole story is just ouch. The PI was vigilantly watching Dale. Or Dale. I keep saying Dale. Dale. David and Gail. (laughs) Dale. (laughs) But couldn't get close enough to hear what they were saying in the Hilton's restaurant. But according to Gail's friends, David became distraught and told her that he wasn't ready for it to end, that he still loved her, and that he could arrange for them to still see each other. Gail then told him that she wanted no part of the relationship while David was still married. She then got up and walked out to her car. David followed her. They talked for a few more minutes outside. Obviously, something between them changed because then they headed upstairs to a room. Meanwhile, Clara and Lindsay drive to the Hilton and very quickly spot Gail's black Lincoln Navigator. Clara began sobbing and jumped out of her vehicle toward Gail's car. She grabbed the windshield wipers and bent them, busted the taillights, and then scratched her car keys along the side of the luxury SUV and broke off the bottom of Gail's heart-shaped bumper hitch cover. Clara then took the keys to her silver Mercedes-Benz and began to scratch the word adulterer into the paint of Gail's SUV. Wow. Can't really blame her. Yeah. I mean, some Carrie Underwood shit right here. Right. I feel like that's where it came from. Yeah. Claire and Lindsay then decide that they're going to walk inside the hotel. They checked into the hotel restaurant or checked. I'm sorry. They checked the hotel restaurant and bathrooms. Lindsay then called her dad on her cell phone, making up a story that one of the twin boys were sick and that David needed to come home right away. So she's like doing all this for Clara. Moments later, the elevator door opens and David and Gail come out, smiling and holding hands. I was extremely upset, Clara said later during cross-examination, referring to the moment that she saw her husband and Gail Bridges emerging from an elevator in the lobby of the Hilton, smiling and realizing that the relationship was not over between them. She said he was holding Gail's hand the way he used to hold my hand when I was special to him. And at that moment, I felt what I felt is just impossible. There was a complete disconnection between my mind. I stopped thinking and in my actions. There was no connection between my brain and my actions. <clears throat> David walked towards his wife and she began hitting him in the face. He easily averted her blows, so next, Clara focused her attention on his mistress. She attacked Gail, punching her so hard that she knocked her to the ground. She yanked her by her hair and began slamming her head into the hotel's marble floor while screaming, You bitch, he's my husband. Somehow, during the scuffle, Gail's blouse was torn off of her. Clara was also quoted as shouting, This is Dr. David Harris, and he's fucking this woman right here. She's mad. Yeah. At the same time, Clara was beating Gail. The saddened Lindsay began hitting her father with her purse, shouting, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. 
Wow. <clears throat> you know, she's like, you're, you've torn this family apart, dad. Yeah. Like she's angry, you know, it's, it's also heartbreaking. The hotel security guard pulled the two women apart, but in an almost superhuman strength, Clara escaped the men's grasp and went back for Gail, biting her in the leg and calling her a bitch who was sleeping with her husband. The hotel ordered Clara and Lindsay to leave the premises. Clara and her stepdaughter got into Clara's silver Mercedes Benz and a few minutes later saw David and Gail exiting the hotel, heading towards Gail's SUV. All Clara could think about was that her husband was leaving with this whore of a woman. In the heat of the moment, Clara stomped the gas and struck down her husband in the parking lot as her teenage daughter sat screaming for her to stop while in the passenger seat. Oh, my God. David's body propelled 25 feet through the air from the force. Holy shit. Yeah. And according to the medical examiner's office, Clara then ran over her husband's body three times with the stepdaughter in the car. Okay, I'm sure she just switched to team dad super yeah, fast. Yeah, can you imagine that being the last words you say to your dad? I hate you, I hate you, and then your fucking crazy ass stepmom murders him yeah. with you in the car. Can you imagine having to feel your dad's body being run over? You know, okay, if you feel, honestly, okay, if you feel this strongly about somebody, if you can feel this amount of rage towards mm-hmm. somebody, mm-hmm. I honestly just think that you shouldn't be with them. Like, if you can feel so intensely that you lose your fucking mind, it's not a healthy relationship. I agree with you. I'll tell you my thoughts on it a little further in. Um, but she was, I, I can't imagine how she felt in the moment. Oh, I can't either. You I know? cannot imagine. But God. I, mm. I don't feel like that's the way that i would react i think that i would notice it was happening i'd probably scream some profanities but I, I would probably leave. beat the shit out of both of them but i wouldn't murder them i don't think them. i would even do that oh I think... I think i would be so filled with rage i would probably start swinging really yeah yeah <laughs> i think so yeah i can't imagine seeing that that would just be so gut-wrenching oh for sure yeah i i would want to attack yeah <laughs> Um, so when Clara finally stopped the car, according to witnesses, Lindsay got out of the car, rushed around to the driver's side and punched Clara in the face. She then collapsed on the ground and sobbed. When Clara got out of the car, she didn't seem to know what to do. Witnesses said she finally walked over to her husband. She stared at him. Then she too began to sob. She got down on her knees and cradled her in or cradled him in her arms. Where was Gail? Uh, well, I'll tell you in just a sec. So she cradled him and was begging him to breathe. I'm so sorry. She said over and over and over again, David, I'm so sorry. David was dead at the scene and Clara was charged with first degree murder. This was all caught on videotape actually by the PI that Clara had hired. You can see the video and it's just horrifying. So damning testimony came from Lindsay in court, who said that just a week earlier, her stepmother had told her, with all he's done to me, I could kill him and get away with it. Oh, God. Personally, I think that was like a figure of speech or or like a, you know, just like. I think every woman would probably say say something like that. Yeah. Out of anger, but not actually like want to do that. Right, right. This was obviously a case of snapping in the moment. That's what I think. Lindsay claimed that her stepmother, and I quote, stepped on the accelerator and went straight for him, saying moments before impact, I'm going to hit him. 
Lindsay also said that she had uh, that she had attempted suicide four times by slitting her wrist since witnessing the murder of her father. Um, yeah, yeah, that would be a horrifying sight to see. Mm-hmm. At the scene, Clara Harris uh, had told police that she was only trying to separate her husband from Gail Bridges, and that she testi- and she testified in court that she had wanted to hurt her husband emotionally, but not physically. So basically, she said that she was trying to, like, ram the car to get them to separate. Like, you're not leaving with him type thing. But then she runs over him three times. I know. I know. I know. That's the thing that doesn't make sense about that. I know. So in February 2003, jurors had to decide whether Clara Harris was a cold-blooded killer or a distraught wife who snapped in a moment of devastating pain. Surprisingly, several of David's family members had wonderful things to say about Clara. His mother smiled at Clara while recounting her po- her positive qualities. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? I, I can't. I feel like it doesn't matter how good the person is. If they killed my kid, <clears throat> I would be like, obviously, you're a shit. Yeah. Yeah. David Harris. David. I'm sorry. David Harris's brother, Gerald Harris Jr., called Clara truthful and credible and one of the most law abiding persons I know when testifying in court. Wow. I think that says a lot. It will definitely. I think it says that she snapped. Yeah. Prosecutors claim that Clara ran her cheating husband over in a fit of premeditated rage, knowing exactly what she was doing. Meanwhile, the defense said that the attack of David Harris was an accident. Mm. Clara, while on the stand, claimed that it was all an accident and that she had been aiming for Gail Bridges', Bridges car and hit her husband instead. A medical examiner said that the markings on David's body and the car's undercarriage showed that Clara had driven over him several times. Several witnesses, including Lindsay, corroborated this version of the events and stated that Clara circled the parking lot up to three times, running over David each time. So now my thoughts on this. Personally, I think that this was a crime of sudden passion. I do not think it was premeditated. I think when she said I could kill him and get away with it, that was just a, I think any woman would say that when she's hurt. I think so too, yeah. Um, I also do not for one second think that it was an accident. No, not an accident. But I do sympathize with her because I think she lost it and that shit had to cut like a fucking knife. Yeah. Um, The hotel meetup was a devastating blow to Clara, but um, after that first blow you know uh, the first blow was discovering the affair Mm -hmm. and then to find out that your husband is supposed to be cutting it off with this woman and he's at the same hotel with her that you married him at but also he gave her a list of demands yes and that she went through with and not they weren't just simple demands like paint your fingernails and you know cut your hair short Mm -hmm. it's literally like get a boob job and bleach your hair and Mm -hmm. Things that took time and money and effort and things that she probably just didn't even want to do to herself in exactly. general. And all she wanted was for him to, to not love her. Yeah, to, to, love her. to end the affair and to love her like mm-hmm. he was supposed to do. Exactly. So when she calmly spoke to David about it, she told him, you know, like, if you love your side whore, then we can divorce. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but David said he didn't want a divorce. You can't 
have your cake and eat it too. It just doesn't work like that, bud. No. It, it just doesn't. So instead, he gives her a superficial list of, you know, things to make their marriage work. You know, have more sex with me, lose weight, get breast implants, dye your hairs, you know. How like, much sex does this motherfucker need? Right. Like, if he's getting it from her multiple six times a day and then yeah. three times a day with from his Gail. mistress? Oh, my Ugh. God. So basically, he demanded that she be at his every beck and call. And she did. She quit her job for yeah. him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he swears he's going to end things with side hoe, but he lies. So he was giving Clara false hope. Yeah. You know, she's thinking this is going to be over and that they're going to be happily ever after. And I mean, no, I can't imagine how she was feeling. I have an unpopular opinion. Okay. Most girls are like, get mad at your husband and not the girl, Mm -hmm. which I do agree with if the woman has no idea about Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. But if the woman does. Mm hmm like if she knows that you are married she is just as there is no you know divorce pending there you know yeah she's a fucking skank just she's just as shitty as your husband and you should be equally angry at the both not that she owes you any loyalty whatsoever but it's just like girl code fucking (laughs) not even that you just don't fuck with a married man or you Mm -hmm. don't fuck with a married woman like that's just so disrespectful that's ruining someone's life that is breaking somebody in a very vulnerable way like you just don't do that how do you think that if they do it with you they won't do it to you right you know what i mean you are dumb if you are and, fucking with a married person and you genuinely think that they're not going to do it to you too yeah and yeah. maybe they won't and but, sometimes you know what people get lied to you know what i mean there's situations where dudes are like you know i'm going through a divorce yada yada, yada and they're really not but this in this particular situation he had a wife that he had no intention of leaving and you skank bitch knew this yep and you, this whole office knew this. Yep. You know what I mean? And like I said, she wasn't shy about showing it. Mm-mm. It's just gross. So um, I don't think that she planned this out. I think she fucking caught him red-handed and she snapped. I mean, like imagine that sickening feeling in the pit of her stomach when she sees them walk out of the elevator together. Yeah. I don't think she's a bad person. I think, to be honest, she did what every woman secretly thinks about when they catch their husband cheating, you know, and uh, I in no way do, you know, I he he was the victim here and I'm not saying he got what he deserved, so to speak. We're not condoning this type of behavior. I think it's a horrific tragedy, especially because of what uh, Lindsay had to witness. That's the worst part about all Mm -hmm. of it, honestly. Mm hmm. But I also think that, sadly, in that moment, Clara did not have self-control. She yeah. saw red, and I don't think she could control herself. Yeah. Um, and, again, not to victim blame, but why? Why, oh, why would you take your side hoe to the hotel that you're married at? Just ew. That's, like, psychotic behavior, I feel. Yeah. Like, that's not normal behavior. And I think that was, like, the cherry on top for I Clara. Think so too, yeah. You know what I mean? It sucks. She shouldn't have done it. 100%. She should not have done it. In no way, shape, or form should that have ever happened. People get cheated on every day, and the Mm -hmm. wives don't kill their husbands, and the husbands don't kill their wives. Right. But, I mean... It was just so downright disrespectful, just the whole thing. For sure. I do think... I agree with you. It was a crime of 
passion it was oh, yeah sudden she snapped yeah we there's a show called snapped, snapped for a reason yeah. people do do that like yeah. you can get to a limit where you just psychologically break yeah and and it's not always like an instant where like you go up to your husband and he, something happens and you just stab him no. once or twice like i think a lot of times there's a lot that leads up to it yeah and it's like like her running him over and over like she's yeah. still fucking angry oh, she's yeah. still seeing red it's not like i don't yeah I, I mean i don't know the psychology but i feel like it would be very possible that she probably won't even remember what she did yeah you know what i mean or like not realize what's happening yeah. when it's happening she's just so full of just rage and and yeah. sadness and grief and yes oh and she should you know face repercussions oh, yeah. for it but I, I think too the fact that his family had such nice things to yeah, say about her, like that right there, huge. that does say entirely yes, just everything. Yes. Because yes, I don't think that I could give Mm-mm. a good, um, like whatever, yeah, testimony about a person if killed they killed son. my son. Yeah. yeah, even if they were like the best human being on earth. Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, um, this was a big deal for news stations and radio talk shows. Of course. Um, The talk show lines were jammed with callers um, saying that Clara should not be severely punished for what she had done. More than one caller suggested that David had signed his own death warrant the moment he left the Hilton with Gail instead of with his wife and daughter. Okay, that's not true. (laughs) Don't say that. Like, you probably should have left with your wife and, you know. Yeah. Leave the side hoe. Like, come on, dude. Yeah. Do right. Do do better. Do good to your wives. Do Mm -hmm. good to your husbands. So, of course, with digging, reporters quickly found out and aired that this was not the first time Gail Bridges had been accused of being the other woman. She was kind of known as, like, the town hoe bag. Oh, do you know... I can think of a few girls off the top of my head that are like, it's like known no for that. Yeah. Like they do that. They It's like they don't want a single man. They yeah. want a married man. It's like some weird form of validation, I like, think. Why? he do, He's not going to leave his wife, you dumb fuck. Or if he does, why would you want that? Exactly. Like, why? Uh, so um, during Gail's divorce proceedings, which began in 1999... Her ex-husband, Steve Bridges, claimed that she had been carrying on a lesbian relationship with her best friend, Julie Knight, who was married to Chuck Knight, a software specialist for an aerospace company. Chuck made the same allegations about his wife, Julie, during their divorce. So anyway, at her trial, Clara Harris testified before a packed courtroom that she did not mean to kill her husband, but was only trying to wreck Gail's SUV. She said that her mind was so flustered that initially she didn't even realize that she had run David over. She seemed remorseful and she repeatedly broke down weeping in the courtroom. Eventually, Clara's attorneys persuaded the jurors that Clara had acted under sudden passion rather than with intent to kill. And she was given a 20-year sentence. In Texas, murder and sudden passion carries a minimum penalty of just two years with a maximum of 20. Clara's twin sons went to live with another couple who had been close friends with Clara and David. David had a life insurance policy where Clara was named his sole heir. 
Under Texas law, though, she could not benefit financially from killing her husband, obviously. Right. (laughs) Upon conviction, she lost everything and all of the property would go to Lindsay and her half-brothers. Clara Harris was a model prisoner, and as a part of her prison program, she learned Braille and worked several hours a day translating school textbooks into Braille. Wow. She was first eligible for parole in 2012, just nine years after the killing, but she was denied. Over the next five years, she was turned down three more times. I'm not really sure why, to be honest, but hey. In 2017, she got a new parole attorney. Kevin Stewie of San Antonio. And Kevin here comes up with a new strategy. Strategy. (laughs) At her final parole hearing, he brought her two sons, who were then 19 years old and were both attending universities in Texas. They said that they had come to the prison every month for the last 15 years without fail to visit their mother. Wow. The twins acknowledged that, that they had lost their father, But at the same time that they had lost their mother, who they loved deeply. Yeah. They were victims twice over, they said. Mm -hmm. Clara's application for parole was finally granted, and she was released on May 11th, 2018, at the age of 60. And she had served 15 years. Wow. And that is it. Those poor boys, though. I mean, poor Lindsay. But yeah. also, those boys were young. Yeah. They were like toddlers. Yeah. And they gosh. lost their mother and their father, you know? Well, they really didn't know either of their fucking parents. Yeah. Like, that is heartbreaking. It is. It is. I wonder how I would feel if my mom did that to my dad. I think I would probably hate her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess it depends on your age, too. You know, like, and they were toddlers. So yeah. it, I'm sure they didn't really understand it. And being that they didn't know him, mm-hmm. you know? It probably was a little different. You know, their yeah. mom was all they had. That's true. You know. And your mom, when you're little, especially if you're a little boy, little boys love their mommies. Oh, yes. I think it's nice that they saw her every month, though. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, that was crazy. Yeah. Not at all victim blaming, you guys. Um, I was just kind of trying to explain the psychology behind I, what I think went through her mind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the fact that I could, I, I could sympathize you know, just uh, the pain, mm-hmm. the pain. I, I can see that definitely being a case where you snap for oh. sure. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. As, I think especially because of the list of demands. I really think that, oh, that yeah. she was doing played everything a huge role. she could. Yeah. You know, she she was working overtime to fix this marriage. Mm-hmm. And he obviously just did not give a shit. Yep. And that is so sad. Mm-hmm. Like. God. Oh, I think that was a long episode, wasn't it? Yeah, we're like at an hour and 36 minutes. So, yeah. Not too shabby. Yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Um, It was fun. I'm so glad to be back in the game. Me too. Mm -hmm. This was really fun. Yeah. I forgot how much I loved it. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, I guess we'll see you guys next Monday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe your, your mom may change it from sunday so i guess we'll just play it by ear but um yeah you can uh follow our um instagram and our tiktok at don't drink the jones juice and you can um join our facebook group at for god's sake don't drink the jones juice 
You can buy our merch at storefrontier.com slash don't drink the Jones juice, or you can pick up a shirt, a Ouija board shirt from Cupid Slave. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, should we tell them about... About what? About that the little interview thing we did? Oh, yeah. Talk about it. Because I'm... Um, you go ahead and tell them about it, because I'm going to look for something really, really quick. Okay. So, actually... Um, we had somebody from Georgia State who works for the newspaper there, or she writes for the newspaper. Um, somebody, one of our listeners, I can't remember who, they said that um, it was, but they... I am fucking this all up. Basically, there this the girl's writing a... Um, like an article about true crime and about like people's interest in it. And one of our listeners recommended that she interview us. And it, did you mention it's for the GSU signal? Yeah. Well, I didn't say the signal, but okay. It, Sorry. I'm just trying to look for something. So. I said for the Georgia state um, newspaper. Okay. But anyways, yeah. So um, we did a little interview for that and um, I'm not sure when it's going to come out, but um yeah, it was really fun. It was really cool. And um, if you guys can read it, you should. I'm excited to read it. Yeah, I can't wait to post it when it comes out. Me too. I hope. How will we even see it? Like, is it online? Um, Do you know? I don't know. We should ask her about it. We should. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, we will definitely post about it. And um, I don't know. I just thought that was a super cute, exciting thing that happened. So also yeah. um whoever you were that recommended us thank you so much yes and tell us who you were because i'm so sorry i cannot remember who i can't she said remember it was. either yeah but yeah i mean we were on a zoom call so it's not like we could go back and look you know what i mean right so, yeah so tell us who you are thank yes, you and thank you <laughs> um is that it about that mm-hmm. i want to play something super quick and you're going to know what this is. So our last episode, guys, um, apparently some of you did not like our exit. (laughs) (laughs) Because Alyssa had this bright idea for us to be like, bye. I hate saying, well, for God's sake. And then Brooke says, don't drink the Jones juice at the end, because I always feel like there's not a good lead up to it, and it just feels forced and awkward. So I was like, Let, let's just not say it this time. And so, well, let me just say, uh, one of our listeners here was not happy about it, <laughs> and I'm about to play you what she said. <laughs> okay, here we go. What the fuck do you and Brooke mean? Y'all have a good one. Bye. Where is, for God's sake? Don't drink the Jones juice, okay? I don't know what that have a good one by was, but I'm not leaving the grocery store, okay? I'm going to need you guys to completely redo that entire episode. There you have it. So, Miss Elena, we will make sure this happens for you, okay? Because we are not going to record a whole another episode. God, I didn't know that it was that important. I guess it is. Sorry for disappointing you guys. Yeah. Well, <laughs> mainly me. I apologize. Damn. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Whenever she sent that to me, I was like, I I forgot all about it. And I was like, what the fuck have is she talking about? Have a good one. <laughs> Y'all have a good one. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess today we'll say, well, for God's sake, don't drink the Jones juice.